True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The woman smiles at the man before her. She pats his shoulder, laughing at his reservations. Don't you worry, you're in good hands. The man pushes down the last inklings of doubt and shakes her hand. She is, after all, the angel of Thunderbell Park. She's helped so many. Why would this time be any different? As the woman turns to leave, holding his dreams in her hands, the smile fades and the mask drops. The angel has taken another victim. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 54, The Angel of Thunderbale Park. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Darren Padiachi, Jane Joe, Audrey Norkia, James Steenkamp, Amanda Kleinhelt, Renal Davies, Madelise van Sale, Jeannie Hasselman, Amune Pennington, Nicola Kruger, Anal, Roxanne van Eck, Rochelle van Eekak, Tammy Moritz Morkel, Nal Schrecker, Tracy Sneeman, and Mandy Peterser, as well as Carla De Silva for her support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone, for your support. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. We also have two new ways that you can support the show. You can head over to Audible or Google Play Books and purchase the Krugersdorp Cult Killings by Jana Marks, which I narrated. Or you can get your health and beauty needs from King Online and get a 10% discount by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. We also have our amazing giveaways still running with King Online, where if you purchase for 400 Rand or more and use the TCSA10 code, you'll get entered into the draw to win your share of 2,350 Rands worth of brand new true crime and crime fiction books. This giveaway is coming to an end very soon, So get your entries in now so that you don't miss out. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated. And it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keep the show growing and improving. The case I'm covering today is not your average true crime story. It's not the type of case that I usually cover either. There's no violent crime involved here, but the offender I'm going to be discussing today has the highest victim count of any offender I've ever discussed on this podcast. Her victims would range between 14,000 and 30,000 people. A final tally was never established. Today's episode discusses a woman named Mariki Prinsloo, who created the largest Ponzi scheme in South African history and brought an entire town to its knees. The sources I used for today's episode include various media articles, an episode of Heisknoet Vare Levens Drama, several studies that were conducted about this crime, and also a few of the more than 25 judgment papers available on Safli about this case. So let's get into episode 54, The Angel of Thunderbale Park. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Thunderbale Park in the Gauteng province of South Africa owes its existence to one thing, steel. In 1941, as the Second World War raged across the globe, 
still was in high demand for armaments, and of course it would be after the war too, as the world sought to rebuild from the devastation of bombs and malicious destruction. The site chosen for South Africa's steelworks was on the banks of the Vaal River, just west of Vereniging. It was a perfect expanse of lush farmland that stretched as far as the eye could see, and when Hendrik van der Beyl chose it, he could likely never picture what would eventually spring up around it, even in his wildest dreams. Van der Beyl had been appointed by the then Prime Minister Jan Smuts as the chairman of the Iron and Steel Corporation, which would become known as ESCOR. Many of South Africa's towns, especially in what was previously known as the Transvaal, have mushroomed up in the same fashion around sources of work. Funderbell Park was built more consciously, and the word park in its name came from the town planner's vision to plant more than half a million trees in the area to create a, quote, modern garden city and modern industrial town, end quote. As Iscor grew, Funderbell Park did too, and by 1989 it had around 75,000 residents. 60% of those people worked at Iscor, and many more worked at businesses who served the steelworks. Residents were certainly not getting rich off the steel factory, but they had good, stable jobs, could put food on the table, and lived in a community that looked after one another. Then, in the 1990s, 50 years after Hendrik van der Beyl stood on an empty expanse of land and dreamed of a thriving town, the steel industry started to tank. For a variety of reasons, the steel price took a downward turn, and Escor was forced to start the first of many rounds of retrenchment at its main van der Beyl Park plant. With large-scale layoffs, devastating levels of unemployment and financial difficulties, the town became a shadow of its former prosperous self. Many residents packed up and left for greener pastures, but for those that stayed behind, they had to find a way to make ends meet. It is in this climate of desperation that we meet Mariki Prinsloo for the first time. Little is known about Mariki Prinsloo's early life. When we catch up with her, she is still Mariki Palsa, a resident of Funderbale Park, and married to her husband at the time, Quibus Palsa. Mariki and Quibus had two children, Yolandi and Quibus Jr. Mariki had been a housewife for much of her life, having left school in her grade 10 year but she had a shrewd business mind, and in 1998, with residents of Funderbale Park struggling to make ends meet, Mariki started a business that would earn her the nickname The Angel of Funderbale Park. Mariki's initial micro-lending business helped the community to put food on the table, and it soon became well known that if you were in need, Mariki would help as long as you were willing to pay the interest, of course. Mariki and her husband registered this business as MP Finance CC, and from all appearances, at least at first, it seemed the business traded relatively legitimately, although it is unknown whether the business was actually registered as a financial service provider. For about a year, MC Finance prospered, and the residents of Funderbale Park benefited from Mariki's loans. And then, as the new millennium dawned, and a new wave of retrenchments hit Escor, which was merged with other steel plants and started trading under the name ArcelorMittal, thousands of Funderbale Park residents found themselves either retrenched or entering early retirement. Many, though, walked away with healthy severance packages, and that was when Mariki Prinsloo saw a way to expand her micro-lending business. She could, she figured, 
lend out far more money and gain greater interest in return if she had more capital to begin with. That was where the idea started, but it was not where it ended up. Mariki started to recruit investors to her business. She told them that the investment was in her micro-lending business and that they would earn 10% interest per month on their investments. She said she charged 30% interest on her loans to her clients. 10% went to the investor, 10% to the agent that gained the investment, and the final 10% went to her business. What she failed to mention was that the amounts she loaned out were not equal to the investments she was getting, so there was no way that one could repay the other. In order to pay the investor their 10% dividend every month, she would have to use other investors' money. Mariki's agents were all family members. Her son, Corbus Peltzer Jr., her daughter, now married, Yolandi Lemstra, and her husband, Gerrit Lemstra, and Mariki's niece, Isabel Engelbrecht, and her husband, As the Department of Trade and Industry recognised that the residents of Funderbale Park were now in a particularly vulnerable position, with large amounts of money being paid out to them, they set up an opportunity centre in the town, which was manned by financial consultants and other professionals, to help residents come to terms with their new lives and secure their financial futures. One financial consultant working at the Opportunity Centre was also called Mariki. Mariki Willemse was interviewed in the episode of Heisgenoot Ware Levensdramas about this case, and she relayed how Mariki Pelser's agents would stand at the gates of the ArcelorMittal plant and accost employees as they left, asking them if they were being retrenched. When they ascertained which employees were being retrenched, they recruited them as investors to join Mariki Pelser's business. Financial consultant Mariki Willemse became suspicious when people started approaching her, mistaking her for the other woman of the same name, and telling her that they wanted the 10% payout investment that everyone was talking about. Willemse quickly told the callers that no legal investment could possibly pay out that percentage, and that certainly none of the investments that she could offer them would do so. Without fail, the callers would put the phone down, and she never heard from them again. The Mariki that they were actually looking for, though, did hear from them, and she gladly took their money. After many of these calls and hearing talk about town, Willemse reported the strange goings-on at MC Finance to the Department of Trade and Industry and the Reserve Bank. To their credit, both the DTI and the Reserve Bank did quietly investigate Mariki Pulse's business activities at that time, and in 2000, they sent her a letter of warning to stop taking in investors' money immediately. Mariki promised that she would abide by their instructions. She did not, and just a few months after the order was issued by the DTI and the Reserve Bank, Mariki's husband, Corbus Peltzer, was found dead in their home. His death, the result of a single bullet wound to the throat, was deemed a suicide and the angel of Thunderbale Park was a widow in mourning. It is believed that Bert Prinsloo met Mariki while her husband was still alive. Bert worked at Absa Bank for many years, and after Corbus Pelser died, he was appointed as a director at Mariki's business. Their dealings did not remain platonic, though, and soon they were in a romantic relationship. In the meantime, Mariki Pelser's investment business was booming. 
Some investors had caught wind of the investigation by the DTI and the Reserve Bank, but because their findings and warning to Mariki were not made public at the time, she used the fact that her business was not forcibly shut down to reassure investors that the investigating bodies had found no cause for concern. This was, of course, very far from the truth. But it would take another two years, and many millions of rands, before this became clear to everyone concerned. Mariki Palsa and her family were living large. She'd made all of her family members slash agents directors in a set of six branches that she'd opened in the space of two years. Mariki and Bert lived in a palatial home, kitted out with imported furniture, expensive vehicles, high-end pieces of art, and closets filled with designer clothing. Isabel Engelbrecht and her husband purchased a helicopter, which they used once a week to fly to a farm they rented and pay to farm labourers. The family purchased a guest house and a game farm on the outskirts of Funderbale Park. Life was good, and not just for the directors at that time either. Their investors were smiling all the way to the bank. There was just one hitch, though. The family only dealt in cash, and they did not make bank deposits. So you paid your investments in cash, and you got your monthly payout in cash. Yeah, because that doesn't sound dodgy at all. Residents of Funderbell Park recall how once a month, Mariki's investors would queue outside the guest house with the largest containers they could get their hands on. Suitcases, boxes and garbage bags, all to take home their monthly 10% payout. At one stage, the family's cash-counting machines worked so hard that they broke down, and everything had to be done by hand. Mariki consolidated all of her separate entities into one company and called it Cryon. Life was so good that Mariki and Bert decided that it was time to get married. Bert bragged to his friends that he was marrying the sixth wealthiest woman in South Africa. Whether or not that title was accurate, we don't know, of course. But with the wads of cash being flashed around by the newlyweds, it is possible that he wasn't far off. The only problem was, none of that money actually belonged to Mariki, and she was starting to find that her scheme was drying up. There just wasn't enough money to go around, and therein lay her problem. Mariki Prinsloo had created what is known as a Ponzi scheme, and even the most cleverly crafted of these schemes can only continue to be successful as long as the input exceeds the output. New investors have to continually be adding to the pool, and the people of Funderbale Park we're not sure about this story anymore. It only took one month of a few investors not receiving their payouts for word to start to spread. After the second month, serious questions were being asked, and by the third month, no one was hearing anything from Mariki Prinsloo, and the scale of what this woman had managed to accomplish was about to be burst wide open. You see, this wasn't spare money that people had lying around that they'd invested. For those that had been retrenched, for instance, their monthly salaries had stopped coming in, and many had given their entire retrenchment package to Mariki. The 10% payout they'd received per month was the only income they received while looking for another job. Some people had retired from the workforce entirely, and similarly handed over their entire pension to the scheme. Still others, lured by the success they'd seen in their neighbours, had taken out second bonds on their homes as investment capital. When their payouts stopped coming, these people had to pay twice their bond amount 
or risk losing their homes. Miriki, of course, had an explanation. This was just temporary. There was something wrong with their systems, and as soon as everything was back up and running, they would catch up on all the payments with their investors. Behind the scenes, though, the House of Cards was starting to tumble. The term Ponzi scheme is not a new one, and you likely became familiar with it when the US authorities bust the biggest scheme in history run by Bernie Madoff. The term, though, was actually coined in 1919, when an Italian immigrant to the United States, Charles Ponzi, devised a scheme in which he persuaded almost 11,000 residents from Boston to invest approximately $20 million with him. He promised exceptionally high return rates within a short period of time by purchasing international reply coupons from other countries and then redeeming them in the US for postage stamps. Initially, he was able to pay these exorbitant returns to the initial investors by simply drawing from the capital investments received from the new investors. However, as the scheme was not based on any viable underlying economic enterprise, it eventually collapsed when no more investors could be persuaded to make further investments. Through the years, a multitude of these types of schemes have surfaced across the world, and they are now referred to as Ponzi schemes. The term pyramid scheme is often used to describe what Cryon was, but this is not technically true for Mariki's setup. While a Ponzi scheme requires that investors make an initial investment to join, a pyramid scheme often only asks for a small investment up front. Sometimes you just have to buy a product, which is either intended for use by you or resale. With pyramid schemes, the victims are encouraged to recruit more people to the scheme, and they're provided with an additional small financial incentive for this. The victims of pyramid schemes are basically sold the opportunity to participate and earn money by building the scheme, while in Ponzi schemes, the investor is not required to recruit additional investors. To be fair, there were unintentional elements of a pyramid scheme in Cryon, as investors were encouraging their neighbours to join. But they weren't doing this for financial gain. They were doing it because they really believed that they were on to a good thing. Mariki did also have agents that she paid a commission to when they recruited investors, but these people were more like salespeople and often didn't have any of their own money invested in the scheme. By May 2002, Mariki Prinsloo was in hot water. The SAPS Commercial Branch and Serious Economic Offences Unit were investigating, and Cryon was placed into provisional liquidation. Just as quickly as the news of this seemingly fantastic investment opportunity had spread, so did the news that the police were getting ready to arrest the Prinsloos and all of the directors of Cryon. One by one, investors in the Cryon scheme started to realise that they had been duped. For some, it would take longer than others for the penny to drop. Even as the handcuffs were being placed around Mariki's wrists, she was still telling people that their investments were safe. It was the police that had made the mistake, she said. They simply didn't understand her complex business model. The financial consultant at the Opportunity Centre, Mariki Willemsa, received a strange call. The man on the line had not been one of her clients at the centre, but he told her that he had just heard on the news that she'd been arrested and that if he didn't have his money in his bank account by day end, bad things were going to happen. Willemsa very quickly realised that the man thought that she was Mariki Prinsloo. She eventually called the man in and explained the situation with one of the investigating officers present. 
when the man realized that he had likely lost all of his money, he went into shock. Two days later, he had a heart attack and died. A dark cloud hung over Thunderbale Park as police descended on the various properties owned by the Princeloos and their family members and seized all of their assets. A liquidation firm was set up to handle the liquidation of assets. 26 million rand in assets were seized from the Prince Luz alone. The arrested members of Cryon were charged with 218,683 different charges relating to various financial crimes and contraventions of the Prevention of Organised Crime Act. They were released on a cumulative bail of 540,000 rand. All of their assets had either been frozen or seized, and there was little chance that they would be able to flee the country. The investigation of the criminal charges and the liquidation of Cryon would continue on separate paths. One did not necessarily rely on the other. Cryon was no longer a viable business entity and owed people money, so whether it was a criminal entity or not, was not entirely relevant to the liquidation process. The one link between the two, though, was the investors. In the criminal case, the investors were victims of fraud. Mariki had taken their money under false pretenses. However, in terms of the payouts they'd received, and many received payouts for many years, without fail, the victims had also received money from a criminal enterprise, albeit unwittingly. From the liquidator's point of view, those that had received payouts should be made to return that money to the business liquidation fund so that it could be redistributed back to those who were owed money by the business. And yes, it would be those very same people that had to pay it over in the first place. So essentially, a very expensive, and I'll get to that point in a moment, liquidation firm was put in charge of collecting all of the money that investors had been paid on their own investments, and then when they'd collected it all into one place, it was also their job to give it back to the same people they'd just taken it away from. I'll give you a minute to absorb that, because it blew my mind too. Now, before all the financial peeps come for me, yes, I know that is how liquidations work. But this was a bit of a different situation. Surely when people have been victims of a crime, you do not then kick them when they're down. To be fair, in the Madoff case in the US, although far fewer people had actually received any payouts that exceeded their initial investments, they were also made to pay the money back. In 2003, a court ordered that all investors that had received gains from dealings with Cryon had to repay the money into the liquidation accounts. One man had invested 500,000 rand with Mariki, his wife had worked at Chris Harney Baragwanath Hospital, and she'd resigned and withdrawn her 70,000 rand pension and also invested it with Mariki. When the court order was served on this couple, they had to sell their home to pay back the money they'd received in returns. In the months that followed the arrest, it became clear how deeply the scheme's folding had impacted the Thunderbell Park community. Men who had once worked as factory workers for many years, who'd been swindled into leaving their jobs and withdrawing their pension funds, were left to beg for small change at traffic lights. Every school, church and library in the area became a soup kitchen as charities assembled to feed the almost destitute community. Many older couples, who'd been happily living independently, had no choice but to sell their homes and move in with their children. 
a journalist, remember driving up and down the streets of Thunderbell Park at night and seeing how almost every second house had no electricity. The residents simply could not afford to pay their bills. Unfortunately, several people could not face a life without financial security, and they took their own lives. One man had a daughter in matric, and suddenly he could no longer afford to send her to university, which he'd saved for for years. Unable to face his child, he committed suicide. His devastated daughter wrote an open letter in the local newspaper begging other parents not to do the same, as no child would choose money for studies or anything else over having living parents. Financial consultant Mariki Willemser told of a phone call she received one day. The woman on the phone told her that she had a gun to her head, and if Willemser didn't help her with her lost money, she was going to kill herself. Willemser knew the woman, but she hadn't invested money for her. The woman just wanted help from anyone. She didn't know who to trust anymore. Willemser stayed on the phone with the woman for half an hour, reminding her that she had family and friends to live for. While she tried to calm the woman down, she used her cell phone to get police and a social worker from the Opportunity Center to the woman's house. She was still on the phone with her when they burst in and wrestled the gun away. She had not been bluffing. Thunderbell Park was for the most part anti-Prinsloo, and when the family were released on bail, it was soon made clear that they could not live in the area. Also, the entire family had nothing left. Even assets that may not have been part of illegal gains had been taken. For the most part, the family stuck together. They seemed to believe that they would not be found guilty, and Mariki continued to claim that the investigation had been flawed. Also in 2003, the body of Mariki Prinsloo's late husband, Quibus Pulsa, was exhumed. Pulsa's father, Bill, had been fighting behind the scenes for three years to have his son's death reinvestigated. He did not believe that his son had committed suicide. Although, in retrospect, it may seem that Corbus Pulsa may have committed suicide because he already knew how deeply he and his wife had dug their hole and the Reserve Bank and DTI were investigating. The circumstances of his death do warrant questioning, though. The throat is an uncommon place to shoot yourself if you want to commit suicide. There is every chance that you will survive such an injury if you don't place the bullet very precisely. There is also the fact that the gun with which Corbus was alleged to have shot himself was found on the left-hand side of his body, and Corbus was right-handed. Corbus's father, Bill, had an idea that his son had been poisoned before his death, and he'd been telling the police this for three years and he was quite precise about what he believed he'd been poisoned with. Strychnine. Many decades ago, strychnine was used in very small amounts to treat various ailments. Today, it's used in rodent poisons and also mixed into a few different illicit drugs. If ingested by mouth, the poison can kill in 15 to 20 minutes. If mixed in water and injected into a vein it can kill much faster than that. I have no idea why Bill Pulser had identified strychnine as something that his son may have been killed with, but his claims seemed compelling enough to prompt an exhumation. Corpus Pulser's remains were taken to the nearest pathology facility where tissue samples were removed and his body was reburied the same day. Experts from the University of Advertisrant confirmed that strychnine would stay in the body for extended periods after death, and if Pulsar had indeed had the poison administered to him, it would most certainly still be present in tissues 
even though he'd been dead for three years. At the time, Bill Pelser told the media how relieved he was that he was finally being taken seriously. It is unknown whether the folding of Cryon and Mariki's arrest had anything to do with the sudden exhumation. Perhaps the timing was just coincidental, or perhaps someone had information that they had wanted to bargain with, and something was said about the death of Corbus Pulsar. I could only find one media article in 2003 related to the exhumation and investigation, and there is no follow-up information available after that. Even if they found traces of poison in Corbus's body tissue, perhaps it would not have been enough to effect an arrest on anyone, especially three years after the fact. The investigation into Cryon's activities would reveal that 1.5 billion rand had moved into Mariki's hands over the previous few years. Victims numbered anywhere between 14,000 and 30,000 people. Only a small portion of those were ever identified, and this too came at a cost. Many people were too embarrassed to admit they'd fallen victim to the scam. Once the court order started to force people to pay back what they'd earned, even more people went underground, moving provinces, doing whatever they could to get away from the remnants of their poor decision and the shadow of Mariki Prinsloo. Traces were appointed to identify and locate the Cryon investors. The trial against the seven accused in the Cryon ring would span a decade. The combination of a huge number of victims, many defendants, more than 200,000 different charges, and the complexity of the subject matter all contributed to this lengthy trial. The defendants were now penniless and could not afford lawyers of their own, so lawyers were appointed on their behalf. Mariki and Bert divorced, with Bert claiming that he had no knowledge of Crown's business dealings being illegal. Although he had been a director with the company for some time before it folded, he said he'd had no involvement in the running and he felt that he was being used as a scapegoat, simply because he was Mariki's husband. He lamented that everything he had worked for his entire life at ABSA had been taken away, and now, in his fifties, he had to start again. I find it difficult to believe that Bert Prinsloo did not realise that Cryon was a Ponzi scheme. He had spent most of his life working in banking, He understood finance and investments. He bragged that he was marrying the sixth richest woman in South Africa. If the financial consultant, Mariki Willemser, who had no dealings with the company and only made a judgment based on what she'd heard, could figure out that Crown was operating illegally, surely Bert had to have known. As the trial continued on in fits and spurts over the next decade, the family behind Crown became well known to journalists. Mariki Prinsloo showed no emotion in court. She simply refused to admit anything and maintained that this was all one big mistake. Bert would become known as Bitter Bert in the media as he seethed at what he saw as unfair treatment. Corbus Pulsar Jr. was very clearly following his mother blindly. As the trial neared its latest stages, his lawyer would present evidence of a learning disability that Corbus Jr. had, saying that he'd always relied on his mother to guide him in his life, and this time she had led him terribly astray. Despite his proclamation of innocence, Journalists would say that they'd become very familiar with Corbus's middle finger, as the man would pull zap signs at them if they so much as looked in his direction. Yolandian Gerrit Lemstra claimed to have no knowledge of any illegal activities at the company, 
and Yolandi became so animated in her testimony that the judge had to regularly interrupt her to ask her to please stop swearing. Isabel Engelbrecht and her husband said that they were just employees of the business and had no part in duping people. Isabel, though, had been Mariki's most successful agent. She had lured thousands of people into the scheme. She, though, claimed that she thought the amount of money everyone was earning was normal. She'd purchased the helicopter because she'd always dreamed of becoming a helicopter pilot for Netgear. It would emerge that the Engelbrechts had duped someone else, though, and someone much closer to them. A young woman came forward to a journalist. She had been orphaned a few years before, and being friends with the Engelbrecht's daughter, Isabel and her husband had invited her to live with them. She'd lived with them while things were good, and still did so for a while during the trial. She said that after everything had been seized by the police, the family was destitute, and then one day, Isabel started to ask the young girl about her inheritance. She had 85,000 rand due to her when she turned 21, and Isabel said that she thought it was nonsense that she had to wait so long, and she would help her to get it sooner. She did help her, the girl says, and the money was paid into her bank account. When she met the journalist, she brought with copies of her bank statements, that showed how, within five days, her entire inheritance was gone. In several payments to Isabel's bank account, the money was siphoned out. It was spent on matric farewell dresses for the Engelbrecht's daughter, to pay off their bill with the municipality, and on several hairdressing appointments, which showed up in the documents too. For a long time, The young girl believed that she might get the money back, as Isabel had intimated that she would be receiving money once she was found not guilty. But she soon realised that this was not going to happen. As the liquidators worked to get in as much money as possible, incredulous investors started to push back. There are close to 25 different judgments available about this case online and most of those are from investors that pushed back at having to pay their gains into the liquidation fund. Almost all of these cases were unsuccessful. Of course, most still had hoped that when the liquidation process and the trial were complete, that they would at least get some of their money back. If finding out that they had been duped was the biggest shock of all for these people, and then being told that they had to pay back money was the next greatest surprise. When the liquidators announced that they had finalised the process, they were in for another shocking piece of news. Liquidators had managed to recoup 104 million rand during the process. But what investors didn't know was that there were other bills to pay before the money would be redistributed among them. First was the 74 million rand in tracing and investigation fees to find the investors and figure out how much was due to them. Next up came the 10 million rand in commission to the liquidation firm, which is standard practice, and 10% of the accumulated amount. Then SARS wanted their chunk of flesh. This had been hotly debated in court, and it was eventually determined that, regardless of whether the money had come from illegal means, Cryon still owed the taxman. So eight million rand went into Sars' coffers. The remaining twelve million barely covered all the other fees related to the liquidation process. And so, after almost eight years of waiting for their money to be repaid to them, the victims of the Cryon scheme were told that there was no money left. They would not receive a cent from the liquidation fund. And to me, this is the second greatest travesty in this entire case. In fact, 
it would become the source of great debate for many years to come, and many studies would be conducted to determine whether the laws had actually been correctly interpreted. But for the Cryon investors, studies meant nothing. They had lost their money again, this time to a system that was not set up to protect them. Justice was yet to be served in this case, though, and finally, in 2010, the trial would come to an end. The defendants had, for the most part, started to turn against each other in desperate bids to escape jail time. When all arguments finally rested, the judge and several assessors spent weeks poring over 400,000 pages of testimony and evidence. The judge's ruling would take three and a half days to read out, and the defendants all seemed entirely surprised, as they were told that Isabel Engelbrecht was found guilty of the charges against her and given a sentence of 12 years in jail. Her husband was given a five-year suspended sentence. Corbus Pulsa Jr. was found guilty and given five years in jail. Gerrit Lemstra, Mariki's son-in-law, was found to have been deeply involved in the scheme and was found guilty and given 18 years in jail. His wife Yolandi, Mariki's daughter, was given 15 years. Bert Prinsloo was found guilty of 29,000 charges against him and given 12 years in jail. And Mariki Prinsloo, who the judge called the mastermind, was found guilty of 120,000 charges against her and sentenced to 29,010 years in jail. It is the longest cumulative sentence ever issued in South Africa. She would be required to serve at least 25 years before being eligible for parole. All of the defendants immediately requested leave to appeal, and considering the complexity of the case, the judge admitted that it was possible the states could have duplicated charges, so she allowed the defendants to appeal. This meant that they were once again released on bail until their appeals could be heard. This would take another five years. Eventually, in 2015, the group received notification that their appeals had failed, and they reported to start serving their sentences. For the people of Funderbale Park, the cloud that had hung over their town for 13 years lifted only slightly. They had some form of closure to a particularly ugly period in their history, but the scars that Cryon left on the residents remained. Many people never recovered financially from losing their life savings. Many died, destitute and clinging to a hope that was never realised. Corbus Pulsa Jr. served half of his sentence and was released on parole. He then publicly turned against his mother, speaking to a journalist and describing the woman as a monster. Bert Prinsloo was released on parole after serving half of his sentence, and in January 2020, he moved to Strand in the Western Cape. In the next few years, many of the others will be considered for parole too, except for Mariki Prinsloo. She will be eligible for parole in 2035, when she is 82 years old. I would like to say that this is justice, and certainly from a legal standpoint, it is. From a moral one, I don't know so much. In fact, I don't know if anything could really have undone the harm that was inflicted on the people of Thunderbell Park and surrounds by Cryon. It's difficult to say whether or not the other members of the group were really fooled by Mariki and believed that what they were doing was not illegal. Bert Prinsloo definitely should have known better, but the others don't seem to have had the financial savvy that he did. Unfortunately, when you become a director of a company, 
it becomes your legal responsibility to know what is happening in that business. And they all benefited vastly from the suffering of others. After all the investigations were completed, there was 20 million rand unaccounted for. No one knows where that money went, and the properties owned by the people involved were dug up and broken down, looking for the hidden cash. As the defendants get out of jail, one by one, they'll be carefully watched to see if they suddenly come into a financial windfall. In my mind, though, if any of them had hidden the money, they would not have been living the way they did while they were out on bail. Whenever a case like this comes up, the inevitable question is asked, how did these people get fooled? How could they not know that this was not real? Well, really, that's just victim blaming. Because most of these people were not financially savvy, highly educated people. They were hard-working, ordinary, salt-of-the-earth people who had likely never heard the term Ponzi scheme in their life. And even those who had doubts would likely have had those assaged when, for years, people did get the returns that Mariki promised. Their neighbours were prospering. They were buying new cars and going on expensive holidays. The proof seemed to be there so it's almost understandable that they believed it. The investors in this case are certainly not to blame. The only people with any guilt are the people that built Cryon and saw to it that it continued to grow and take more people's money. Sadly, although they were punished, the victims were punished again too, and likely continue to be every day of their lives for believing that the woman who seemed to have all of their best interests in mind, that they dubbed the Angel of Thunderbale Park, was nothing more than a common thief. Thank you for listening to episode 54, The Angel of Thunderbale Park. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs>